0: TechSounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast and webcast, brought to you by the Institute for the Future of Education of Tecnológico Monterrey. I'm José Pepe Camilla, Institute for the Future of Education Associate Director. Today's episode guest is Annelies Goger, Rubinstein Fellow at Brookings Metro. It's a pleasure to have you here, Annelies.
1: Thank you, Pepe. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. First of all, I would like to ask you uh, if you can tell us about your work in Brookings.
1: Sure. Uh, before I came to Brookings, I was an economic geographer by training in my doctoral degree. And I studied supply chains and um, actually in clothing and how labor and talent development fits into that. Um, And then I went from there into evaluation um, work, mostly with the U.S. government, looking at workforce programs across the country. And so I have sort of this combination of a theoretical background and a more applied one. And at Brookings, I've tried to take that sort of nitty gritty, knowing how programs work on the ground and doing a lot of field work in the with programs um, and bridge it with the theoretical influence so that I can help try to sort of insert some like more visionary guidance around what are the directions we need to go with policy and how do we make sure that we're understanding the, the actual practice of things, but also we're kind of rooted in the histories of uh, political economy that created these institutions that we have in the first place. And so I have, I would say three main areas of work right now. One is um, really trying to scale earn and learn opportunities or opportunities that allow someone to continue to advance their learning, even if they're not, if they're still working. So that could be something like an apprenticeship, but it could also be what's called incumbent worker training or staff development. So to me, this connects to the future of work because, um, you know, in the fast changing technology world, you, you have to continue to learn, you have to continue to develop. So how do we create more institutional infrastructure to support that so it's no longer, oh, go away to college and then you're done learning, but you actually have to keep doing that. We have to build institutions, I believe, to actually make that easier and, and facilitate that. And the second body of work is um, the technical, di- you know, digital transformation infrastructure underneath that, that we need to build To make that possible um, so that we have good labor market information so that we can target employers and workers appropriately so that we can identify how to match people in the labor market well and identify what types of skills are in demand i think that we need to really think about that underlying infrastructure differently and then the third is to take a more human-centered approach to the policy. So you're building the institutions and the technology, but then I think you really have to center that work in the perspective of an end user. So I've been trying to pull, to work with populations like people who have been incarcerated or uh, hospitality workers that have lost their job in the pandemic and really walk through from a user perspective, what is their experience of if they get laid off or they're trying to make a career transition, what are the things that are... They're, they're trying to do and how can we support them in getting there instead of um, just like, oh, well, you're on your own. Good luck. <laughs> so those are the three key areas of work that I have.
0: That, that's a lot to uh, handle <laughs> so, uh, But uh, Most of the work is around uh, the future of work and, and, and talent development. Why, why is that important? What's important of investing in that?
1: Well, I think as as I said, technology is changing all the time. And if we really want to have inclusive growth in different regions of the world, um, I don't see how you can really do that without investing in talent in the people who, who make that growth possible because there's just, you know, an ever growing premium on, on the people that are going to build the systems of tomorrow, whether that's tech itself or just something that is, you know, in healthcare, they're using tech in manufacturing they're using tech Uh, in every industry people need to be constantly learning and this innovation culture comes from having a diverse talent workforce um, and combined with this idea of like you're constantly open to learning and changing and adapting and so that's the type of innovative culture and we need to, I think, build in our institutions, which isn't now we have this sort of, oh, you just go to college and then you're done with your education. That's kind of the predominant model, at least here in the U.S., but I think in many other countries as well.
0: Okay. um, Thanks for for your answer. So uh, one of the things that you were uh, mentioning as part of your work is uh, uh, earn and learn. I believe there are uh, several paths uh, in the future uh, for talent development. What, what do you think uh, are those paths uh, and what are those that we have to um, start developing right now so that we get them uh, ready in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, the historically strong dominant one is academic paths, right? You just go to college and that's how you get into a profession or white collar job with a You know, decent wage. Um, But then on the other side, we have historically what was called vocational education, but um, I think now I kind of lean towards calling it something like more applied or experiential education. And this is the idea that you don't necessarily learn in the classroom, you're learning by doing something. And I think there are particular occupational pathways. That are very, you really, you can't just learn something in a book, you, you have to be doing the thing and get better at it and get feedback from a mentor as you're going. And so that's where earn and learn comes in It's this more applied pathway. Um, and I think you know, if you look at them, the gold standard, like Switzerland, they actually have three pathways. The third is a so one is a fully academic, one is fully applied, like you do your licensing for accounting or whatever. You take an exam and then you continue to progress that way. Um, but the one in the middle is the blended approach, which I think is, it's, you spend some of your time in during the week in the classroom and some of your time learning on the job. And that's where you can kind of combine the conceptual learning. Like, you know, this is how an electrode works with like, oh, how do I actually fix this thing when it's broken on the shop floor? Or, um, I think that as we think about the future of work, a lot of the jobs like cybersecurity, like data science, um, you can't just learn those things in a classroom to be really good at it. Cause the way that you do cyber in a particular industry is very, is going to vary a lot. Like if it's in finance, you have a lot, a totally different legislative framework for, or ethical framework than healthcare, for example. And so you have to learn how to use, apply these cyber ideas into that specific industry. And I think that's like we're just really dramatically underproducing talent that is understands how to balance that sort of very industry specific problem solving with the tech you know, kind of core check capabilities that you'd get in a classroom, like a computer science or programming class or, or whatever. So I think moving forward, um, that's critical. And then another really key one that we see all over the world is things like nursing, right? If you're, we've always had in our nursing education, like you can't, you can't do, be a good nurse if you don't ever tr- like practice in the clinical setting. So um, it's always had that applied Piece of it. And I think what we could do is make it more affordable and actually, you know, really cultivate people, make it easier for them to get to that level of knowledge and to a high income at the same time um, by creating those types of alternatives.
0: Interesting. So I I was wondering if there's a way to say uh, that uh, these uh, three paths that you outlined, purely academic path, the more vocational, practical path, and, uh, and this hybrid approach of uh, Switzerland and Germany, that is called the dual system. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, with, uh, this dual system where you mix uh, theor- theor- theory with practice in an industry. Uh, wh- how can we uh, sort it out? So, uh, for instance, it depends on the domain. It depends on the uh, on the person that is uh, deciding. Uh, uh, choosing uh, in in front. So if I was a person, that uh, how will I choose? What are the paths that are possible for me, and what's what's on it for me? Also, yeah. How, how can you? Uh...
1: I think there are several key elements. The first is information access, right? So you pursue a career that you know is out there. <laughs> if you don't know something's out there, something's possible. And you never really exposed to someone who does it or see someone who looks like you, who does it. You know, when I was growing up, I was pretty good at math and it never occurred to me to be an engineer because I, no one I ever met or ever knew or had contact My parents didn't have college degrees. Like no one ever looked like me that was an engineer, but if I were doing it today maybe I'd be like, Oh, that might be kind of an interesting path for me. Um, and similarly, um, you know, when people are in segregated communities and like the people they network with, they have certain information about what jobs are out there and that may or may not be the full universe. So I think that the, there's a really key factor here in exposure at a very young age to a lot of different career opportunities and workplaces so that people get better information about what's possible. Um, and I think that, Um, another key component is, um, making sure that, you know, you want people to not get tracked into, you know, they get seventh grade a test and then they're like stuck in that for the rest of their life. You know, that's also really bad. So we need to build policy that allows people to transfer what they've already learned across these different pathways, which I think Switzerland has been building a pretty good infrastructure for on the policy level. So it means like if I do um, a non in the US, a non credit training and certified nursing assistant, and then I want to become an RN right now in most places in the US, you'd have to start all the way over, take the same class again, but just do it in an academic setting and get credit for it. But instead, we could say design policy that says, well, if you took this, it's it's the equivalent of taking it in academia, but maybe you need to take this one small course that you might not have covered or whatever, um, and and vice versa. So in Switzerland, actually, the most highly paid people either start in academia and switch to the more applied pathway or start in the applied and switch to the academic pathway. Those are the best uh, performing people in terms of income and earnings um, of anyone. And it tells you how valued that is in the labor market to have that sort of both perspectives.
0: Okay, I was I was taking that, no, sorry. So uh, uh, the, um, some some of the things that you just outlined is very interesting. So the first one is uh, information, provide information. I would say that uh, people have to have awareness of the existence of career paths. And it's especially uh, important for people from vulnerable populations because they don't have uh, role models, no? As uh, you say, I understood that you're first generation. I'm first generation also uh, to go to the university. So um, around the family, you know, not have uh, people that uh, can be your, like, your role model, no?
1: Role uh, models, but also people to share... You know, there's always these unwritten rules about how to succeed, whether that's in college, like how to apply for college, how to do well in college, how to get a job in a corporate setting, which maybe neither of your parents ever were in. So they can't tell you like what to wear and what to say, you know, so it's partly mentoring, but it's partly the unwritten rules that get passed through networks Uh, and when you're not exposed to a diverse set of networks at an early age, you, your information is going to be asymmetrical. So you're going to hear a lot about, you know, in the U S you're going to hear a lot about working at Burger King, you know, working, you know, in low wage service sector jobs, but you may not hear a ton about, you know, what is this person who's like a robotics engineer doing or, you know, or or whatever the the specific area of work like my dad he has a lightning rod company and these jobs don't require a college degree. And um, if someone really was motivated and could be a really good learner and, and sort of attend themselves, like I think they would make a massive, really good income in that over time. They would really become an expert at installing lightning rods, right? But nobody comes out of high school in the U.S. thinking like, I'm going to be a lightning rod installer, right? And it's not a pathway that they're even exposed to, Um So I think there's a lot of jobs like that that actually have a lot of earning potential, but they're kind of not, you know, they're not super well known, especially outside certain circles.
0: Exactly. That that part is is very important. It's more like a a soft component of of it. No, it's not necessarily the discipline, but everything that is related to moving in academia and the the world of of work um, that is uh, more um, 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 kind of like ma- work with work, working with your mind than with, with with your hands, no? In, a, in technical jobs, if I can say that, and, and the other thing is uh, policies. Now, for uh, policies that are allowed to transfer what you have learned um, uh, from experience uh, or different settings into uh, into degree programs. In uh, particular in Latin America, this is very important because. Uh, in practically all of our countries it is almost impossible to transfer something that you earn as for instance continuing education even if you did it in a university to transfer that to uh uh, to a degree and even less if it was learned in a job
1: uh yep here too it's a really big challenge and even if they have policy for it oftentimes students don't aware that it exists and that they can even apply for it
0: yes and it's it's, uh, it's uh, really uh, uh, unfair, and uh, it asks uh, to the student to do double work and even pay, pay for that. Pay, pay that. No, so it's a really really complex uh, a really complex situation. I, I want to dig in into the uh, earn uh, earn and learn. I, I think it's a, a very interesting uh, uh, concept uh, in uh, in countries like ours, uh, uh, Mexico, and in Latin America. There are not many opportunities to uh, have a founding, uh, to learn something. Um, in other countries, like in the US, uh, in, uh, Europe, uh, Singapore, for instance, uh, there's uh, money from the government or cheap money because their interest rate can be uh, very uh, small uh, to pay for a, a special course, a bootcamp, camp, etc. to retrain yourself, no? Uh, So when we try to implement uh, the concept of a full-time bootcamp, for instance, for programming or data science or cybersecurity, it's almost impossible for that to work in Mexico because uh, there's no funding for that. So people cannot stop uh, uh, working uh, to dedicate three months of their life to learn and then find a job. Uh, So they have to continue working in the same work they are right now with sometimes incompatible uh, time schedule during the day, etc. So finding ways of um, uh, learning at the same time that they are earning uh, related to the subject they're learning, I think it will be a way to uh, bypass these problems that we have in our educational systems. So what will be the, the key learnings of these earn and learn systems uh, that we can try to see if we uh, extrapolate that into uh, other countries like Latin America?
1: Yeah, and I, and I I actually think we don't have a lot of funding for that here either. It's just that people can pay a lot of money and get into a lot of debt by getting student loans in the U.S. <laughs> and then whether they okay. get a job or not on the other side is still up in the air. But um, for the, the kind of learning you're talking about, like boot camps, a lot of them are very pricey and, and people get into a lot of debt. Um, but I think that what, what I see as a possible path is – is um, is to really restructure higher ed, frankly. Uh, so you have your traditional academic pathways and credit systems. Um, and they often, in the US, at least I don't know how it is in Mexico, but it's like a semester schedule and it's all done by hours. Um, the way that you might... Um, about this is you have your regular academic your your top research universities that continue to get the top academic students but you also get your top um, experiential students and maybe you create um, a more applied university system in the u.s it would be like the regional public universities that are not the top of the research pack Um, and they start delivering content um, that's more competency-based and that's more like in a modularized format of delivery. So that means it's not necessarily you take it semester by semester. It's like maybe part of it's online and part of it's on the job. And But the online modules that are there, they're really geared towards this person who's working in a similar job. And like, this is what they would need to know. Like, so it takes some coordination here. Um, from the institutional point of view, where you have employer engagement in that industry, they've identified, hey, we need a lot of cybersecurity folks. We're not getting enough. And then you say, well, this is what we need them to know at this level, this level, this level, this level, right? And then you have your education people making sure that, okay, here's what they're going to learn on the job, but here's what we need to teach them that they are they need to get in the classroom. And then you build that pathway up. Um, and so... The idea here is that you you you're uh, create like you're using your education funding to create more than one option for someone to learn, and so that it's not just all designed around the person who goes away to school, but it's really kind of putting that person who's working in the center and seeing how can I structure this learning so that they can complete it, and oftentimes the employer needs I, I think will need to be paying. Um, paying part of that education, Um, in Switzerland, when employers do that structured apprenticeship, they actually on average get an eight to 11% return on that investment when the employers invest. So, but that's because they have that institutional infrastructure already in there where the educators sit with the trade association, they build the pathway, the employer participates, the employer doesn't have the full burden of doing all the training because the education system does some of it. Um, and then, you know, on on the job, there are people already know how to, like, they know that when I have an apprentice, this is the, the course that I need to bring them through on the job. And these are the things I need to assess them on in terms of like, show me that you can, you know, code with R or whatever. <laughs> um, or that's an, a tech example, but it could be any, you know, other fields as well. So I think it's, it's about thinking about who, what is the subjectivity of the student, right, that you're building the institution for? And if you, take, if you put that person who's working in the center, what would you need to build as an academic? You're trying to reach a, a new market of students that is not currently able to go away to college, right? So the question is, how do you, how do you adapt your delivery of your courses so that it can be accessible for that student that's working?
0: Yes. Yes, I, I, for me, it's a very powerful concept to put the student uh, at the center and build it around it, him, her, uh, uh, so that uh, he or him uh, succeeds. Uh, but uh, uh, I would also like to ask your opinion about uh, uh, creating a path that uh, has uh, micro-credentials where you can obtain those micro-credentials while you're in the university or also in the workforce and in transferring that? Do you believe that that's also something that should be uh, enforced?
1: Micro-credentials come in, in my view, actually what we were talking about earlier, like how do I show what I know to this person, right? And so if you're doing things chunk at a time, module by module, you need to get a little badge that says, I did that piece. And then you get another badge that it says I did that piece. And when you fill the certain bundle, then maybe, you know, ideally in a higher in a properly uh, set up infrastructure, you could earn up to a degree, right? You could earn a college degree, a master's level. And that ha- that does happen in Switzerland. They they have up to a PhD level in some apprenticeship pathways where you're getting you're earning credit, but it's based on the the competencies that you achieve and not Like I spent so many hours in so many classrooms, if that makes sense. And so it's really about legitimating that learning and making sure that the person has something to show for it. So I do think that micro-credentials are good so that people don't feel like they have nothing to show after they spent four years in a PhD program, (laughs) right? Uh, Which I'm sure a lot of people feel. (laughs) Um, but. You know that you can say like these are the these are the things that I can do, um, and it's it's useful for signaling when if you need to transfer to another job, for example, if you got laid off. Um, but I think they should also add up to a degree because I think that's the only way to make sure that they're not uh, stigmatized and sort of subordinated as like a less than, you know. Um, option for people that didn't make it into academia. Like, that's really not the idea here. The idea here is that you want, you want some of your real hands on, I like to get out there and do things kind of people, they could be the smartest people in the class. Um, but, you know, you want to make it really attractive for them. And, and it has like a lot of status and clout. So some of the apprenticeship programs in Switzerland are harder to get into than Harvard, right? That's the idea you want to create that if you want to work at this apprenticeship in this company, you, you have to show us like you're the best candidate. And once you create that sort of um, dynamic, then I think it helps address some of the challenges around, um, you know, the micro credentials alone, you know, don't necessarily mean very much other than like, oh, well, I have a micro credential in a, you know, in a, I don't know a fanic certification, right? But if it's bundled into something bigger eventually as well, then I think it's um, it gives that learner like credit for their all their learning and taken together.
0: Yeah, but one of the problems of uh, micro credentials is uh, uh, how do you know as an employer what this credential means from this particular person and this particular uh, certificate or company or university you know is
1: yeah that's, uh,
0: that's a problem the granularity of that no
1: yeah and there's a lot of uh lack of transparency about yeah i agree and i think there's that's where you need sort of some governance structure there to say these are the sort of quality ones that count towards these things and um and allowing even if you allow private certifications to come in they're held to a standard like well you, you, you know how many people that got this uh, what are their earnings before and after you know or after a certain period of time so you can have some type of way of seeing if they're mm-hmm. actually paying off for the student or if they're just a waste of that person's time because <laughs> i've interviewed students that have worked really hard to pass like a you know a fanic exam or whatever and then they go to the employer and they're like they they're treated me just like anyone else off the street even though i went through all this and i actually had you know more skill to offer
0: Okay, so, so. The, well, one, one idea could be, uh, as I understand, uh, to use uh, the uh, delta and the earnings of the uh, person as a proxy of the quality of the digital credential, no? So if I'm right, this is related to also one of the, your lines of work, digital transformation in labor yeah. and data systems, am I right?
1: Absolutely, yes, exactly. That's why I'm doing that work. <laughs>
0: Okay, and then what's uh, okay, can you outline um, why why that is important, uh, and and what have you been doing?
1: Yeah, so um, you know we've had the internet for a while now, but a lot of the government programs, at least that I see, they they still work off of a sort of static data mindset, um, like you know, you track who's in participating in the program in Excel table or a database. And then at one point in time and you track various characteristics about them or their, what they got or what the outcomes have been. And that static data set of tracking individuals or reporting on who's being, you know, receiving something or enrolled in a program or whatever it is, it's actually quite onerous to collect the data for it. It takes a lot of staff time and as a result, a lot of the data that's collected in them uh, is often not very good quality because <laughs> maybe they they need to show that someone has a barrier, but maybe the person has five barriers, but they only asked until they got one because they need to just show one and then they can move on and they're really busy. So they're not actually tracking all the barriers accurately. Um, and so, uh, but if you think, if you fast forward to like how, you know, like LinkedIn works, for example, they collect lots of data, but they don't do it in like that static admin data sense. They do it through a platform, right. Or like a big data situation. And so I think the way forward, if we, if we really, um, you know, in the pandemic, we, we still actually collect data like that from employers in the U S every quarter on who they're employing and how much they're earning. We don't even collect things like how many hours are they working? We just have basic, basic, basic data that comes every quarter, which is really late. And so by the time they collect all that from the employer that's often Mm -hmm. entered by hand, and obviously there are some quality issues, then it takes another three months to clean it because it's kind of (laughs) dirty. And then you finally get to know what happened in your labor market six to nine months later. And if you're in a crisis and you're trying to figure out what's going on in the labor market, like, you can't make decisions and you can't see how people are doing because it's nine months late. And so I think that if we were able to, um, you know, this is just one use case of, like, why data matters. But, like, if you could... If you could collect more information about who's working where, at what time, and what industry, and what occupation, and what pay, and when and how many hours, if you had this sort of automated from payroll systems, which um, most employers have anyway, because they need that for tax reporting, um, then then you'd take the burden off the employer from hand-entering into a static thing (laughs) every quarter. You could get it automatically as payrolls are submitted every, you know, payroll period. So it comes more often and you could have more standardized data fields across different locations and geographies so that you could actually link data and and see if someone moved, you know, across the country, you can actually see, um, you still include them because it's the same data that's being collected. Uh, whereas right now it's totally different in every state in the U S. So I see digital, digital transformation and uh, critical for us to be able to gather basic data, robust data about you know where where is the demand for labor, where are the jobs, where are the layoffs, where do we direct support to businesses that are growing really fast? How do we direct support to businesses that are you know about to lay people off and maybe they need some uh, coaching? that if we could more precisely see, like, where we need to invest uh, our time, um, then I think that, you know, we could really start to, um, you know, kind of fix some of the The market failures that happen in the labor market. So one of them would be people finding each other, right? You have a qualified person here, and you have an employer trying to find someone here, but often they can't find each other. They they they're a really good fit already, and they just can't find each other. Another market failure is often that you have a person who has a lot of potential, but maybe needs a little training. And there's there's not, um, you know, the employer wants a finished product. So who's going to pay for that person to get to that level? right? And often this learners, if they're coming from a marginalized community, they can't bear that burden of paying for their own learning. So who's going to fix that, right? Uh, so there's these market failures in matching. And I think that if we had better data, we could at least try to figure out how to direct resources to close them without having to collect static, static data all the time. And, um, and I think you know, when it comes to credentialing, and and like right now, oftentimes someone has to go and get a transcript from a university, for example, to to move on. And but what if you went in the military and you had learning there? And what if you have work experience and you've you've got pro- projects that you'd like to highlight to an employer? Could you use something like a digital wallet or like a little mini portfolio, an app that you put your achievements into? And then that's what you're showing to the employer rather than just a transcript, which is saying, I took these classes. a lot of people do things, um, whether it's outside of class or before or after their education, their formal education, that actually builds their skills. um, And they're not able to communicate that because they don't have a way to do it. And I think digital transformation could offer some of the flexibility to do that.
0: Thank you, it's fascinating. I was, when I was hearing you, I was making a, a, an analogy. So in, a, in, a, in schools and universities, we are now uh, doing many of us uh, learning analytics to understand uh, our students uh, as individuals uh, with their own context, uh, with the things that they could be uh, successful or could be at risk of not doing. And what are the paths that they can follow that could be of uh, more successful them uh, taking into account also what they uh, what are their uh, preference, no, for to follow those paths. So, uh, as I was hearing for you, we need uh, information-based systems that could let us do, mm, let's say, uh, lifelong learning analytics, no, something like that. That uh, for the rest of your life, you can do that not only yeah. in a university or in a particular company that could be doing that, but uh, for the rest of your life, no, no matter where you are no matter if you change of a state of a country or whatever, but uh, that we could guarantee uh, a better uh, path of development for that person yep. uh, with that kind of information.
1: Yeah, exactly, because if you had a learning platform, like some private companies do, but if you had some kind of public infrastructure where those curricula could be put in there and vetted for quality but available to more people than just those in a particular company, Um, you know you could take one little badge and then it says oh you took the badge in you know robotics 101 maybe you want to take robotics 102 or maybe you want to take this other thing that's kind of related but a lot of people tend to do that too and you can kind of suggest things to people and then um, kind of build it into the experience almost like a a video game like you (laughs) you get one badge and then you go for the next and you know gamifying it in some ways but it helps you know because people don't always know what the other what the next step should be or like what their other options like oh you took excel how about taking advanced powerpoint or how about taking crm software you know things that um packages of things that people should be learning as they're working um that maybe other people have typically taken you know as they've kind of progressed
0: Thanks, um uh, thanks Anneli, for for sharing uh, these uh, thoughts and for sharing your time with us with our audience and also the experience on valid developments uh, future work and and data that we need to do better a better job in, in uh, lifelong learning uh, this talk has been fascinating and enjoyable I will surely i think it will surely be a great value for our audience of the institute for the future of education EduTrends podcast. Thanks a lot once again, and I hope to talk to you very soon in the future.
1: Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here and always fun to to chat with you about education.
0: (laughs) Thanks. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast and ife.tech.mx. A special thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey, the Institute for the Future of Education, and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer Miguel Mejía, Edit Trans producers Esteban Venegas and Christian Iglesias. Stay tuned and play Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.